This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. David Stillman is the founder of Gen Guru, which provides organizations with primary research and insights on engaging all generations in the workplace and in the marketplace. He's also the creator and instructor of some very popular LinkedIn learning courses on the same topics, which have over 350,000 certified learners. He's been a contributor to CNN, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and many, many other media outlets. And he's a three-time best-selling author. His first book, starting with When Generations Collide, uh, back in 2002, was really a game changer for me. And David, I want to ask you about that. He followed that up with The M Factor, how the millennial generation is rocking the workplace. And then his latest is Gen Z at Work, which is co-authored with his Generation Z son, Jonah. Uh, David, I've always been skeptical of monolithic labels. Hey, you know, it's like a horoscope. If you were born within these years, you know, you act like another 80 million people just like you. And and you really were the first person that helped me understand what it is about generations. What does make generations different? Well, let me flip it and say to you, what did I say to you that uh, (laughs) changed your skepticism? Well, you talked about like, um, you know, events that really kind of change lifetime, right? Uh, you know, everybody, whether it's 9-11 or the Kennedy assassination or, you know, those sorts of things. Obviously, there are things like the availability or unavailability of certain technologies, right? That That's a driver of, you know, di- what we've talked about, digital natives and digital immigrants and that sort of thing. But it, it's more than that, right? It's not just technology driven. There, there, there really are uh, generational differences. And and I think, frankly, not enough people get that and pay enough attention to it. They just kind of use a very broad brush and say, oh, you know, if you were born within these dates, then we need to, to, to do X. Well, first of all, let me be clear. I'm not here to put anyone in a box, as we like to say, as I've always said for my whole career studying this, I like to take the lid off the box and give some insights to a generation. And I 100% believe you can group a certain uh, generation together. And the theory behind generational differences is that each generation experiences events and conditions, but during their formative years, you know, so um, it really is these events and conditions that take place usually, I think, between the ages of 12 and 20, when you're really grasping the world around you and deciding everything between, you know, what you want to do for a career, what brands you like, all these types of things that are really shaped by events and conditions. You mentioned, you know, an assassination. It could also be a leader. It could be a world event. It could be, you know, mother nature and a tsunami, you name it. But events and conditions, you know, take place during your formative years results in what I call a generational personality. And a personality are these given 
traits that come about because we experience these events and conditions that you then take with you into every single life stage. And so, you know, everyone will say, well, don't we all, you know, get married? Don't we all maybe have kids or get a job, retire, whatever it is? And we all hit the same life events. But, you know, my data and research over the years, um, you know, shown that each generation hits that life event looking through a different lens and it's based on the events and conditions. Um, and that's how, you know, we get through to skeptics like you. <laughs> well, <laughs> in, in your first book, 20 years ago yeah. now, the, the title When Generations Collide was a great one because, you know, you noted that, I mean, for the first time we had four generations in the workplace and there were lots of differences. Um, I, I want to make sure we definitely talk about Gen Z, but let's let's back up a little bit and talk about, you know, what are some of those differences? How do they play out um, in, in the workplace and in the marketplace? Well, I know we're dealing with, you know, uh, the financial industry, and that's going to be a lot of your viewers here. I would say, you know, in your industry, you've got five generations for sure of customers um, that you're dealing with. And, you know, you look at something like, uh, like customer service, okay? So if you took customer service for a traditionalist, my dad's a traditionalist, 84, my mom, uh, you know, there's still the generation that likes to go to the bank, come in, you know, hopefully you're going to serve them cookies and some coffee, <laughs> have a conversation where they know the banker and they walk in and they know it, you know. Well, then customer service really changed when along came baby boomers who are so busy doing things. And that's where you really saw the invention of the drive through. You know, you could stop in, do your banking, keep right on going. And that was total, you know, customer service about adapting to just sort of time that they just boomers never had. Then came my generation. I'm a generation extra. And that really was online banking. You know, it really was the era of being able to do our banking online. And then you go to millennials um, and suddenly it went two way. You know, really, it was like two way communication that was happening. Um, and it was really the start of some alternative investments, uh, the early, early, early stages of robo banking and some of those things. And now you have Gen Z, you know, everything from crypto to um you know, NFTs that others would not even factor into a conversation around financing or investing, yet very real and oftentimes very profitable for the youngest generation. So, you know, there's just an example of five different generations of customers. If you're a financial advisor, you sort of need to know where you're going to hit one of those generations. And oftentimes, you know, you might be catering to, say, boomers and even traditionalists and banking, no pun intended, uh, sort of getting the next heir. But if you don't understand sort of the generations that are going to be coming in, that transfer of wealth will will mean nothing for you because they will have picked different advisors. Um, uh, that's a major topic in, in the industry, right? There's anywhere from three to $20 trillion in wealth that's being uh, passed down. And, and most of the financial institutions, the traditional financial institutions, really don't feel like they're prepared. I, I wrote a blog not. post. I, mean, I will say they are not. They, I would totally agree with you. And no fault of their own, um, but you're going to stick to where you know, where you're comfortable. And a lot of them are more comfortable in the traditional boomer extra realm uh, and will write off the younger generations. Uh, um, yet I'll just jump ahead a little bit. You know, Gen Z still wants to walk, have a financial institution. They still are looking to help from a banker, from an advisor. And so a lot of times people just assume no, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it's still there provided you know how to connect with them. 
How do the different generations view institutional trust? You know, not not just banks, but governments and um, you know large things like that. that that's that's been a, a a big part of the those shaping experiences for different generations too. But like I said, we could start all the way at the traditionalist generation, the one that even came before the boomers. Those are the ones that had the most trust in an institution because they built a lot of those institutions. You know, from banks to government. Um, you know, you name it, those are the ones who put all institutions and most American companies on the map. Then you saw the baby boom generation came along that really said, okay, we'll trust these institutions, we'll support them, but we think there needs to be change. And, you know, 80 million had their voices heard and they had incredible change, civil rights, human rights, voters' rights, women's rights, you name it, that generation really changed it. They're still supporting the institution, but changed the institution. And then came my generation. That's really where you saw the fall off of trust with institutions. Um, a lot of factors came into that. One being, um, you know, just we saw the rise of the media. So suddenly news wasn't just 10 to 15 to a half hour a day. It was 24 seven. And it was right at a time where a lot of institutions did crumble right before the rise on television. Um, the Enrons of the world where, you know, they saw their parents and things promised so much called into question and every institution did get called into question. And I'm not saying that, you know, these institutions weren't struggling before, but suddenly it was public information and the stock market, organized religion, the military, you know, all these big sacred institutions. Vietnam, from, Watergate. All of it. Well, that's going to be a little bit more for the baby boom generation, you know, okay. and that's they fought back where Gen Xers are like, forget it. You know, we didn't even fight. We back. opt out. Yeah. Or we're going to look for alternative ways. And the problem with Gen X was dramatically smaller. So we should just take a look at the size of the baby boom generation, 80 million. Then came my generation, you know, we're hovering right around, you know, 60 million. So a lot can play well for Generation X when you're looking for a job and there just isn't as many of us to go around. You know, that's fine. But it came time for, you know, letting your voice be heard. You know, we were a little bit ignored in the marketplace. You know, we weren't creating the cash cows that baby boomers did for everybody. And so, you know, we sort of, you know, not that we opted out. We were just extremely skeptical, but for really good reasons. And then started to look for alternative routes, you know, um, whereas the millennials raised by baby boomers, typically, um, when it came to institutions, it was a little bit more like collaborative. You know, we saw a little bit more of that let's all come together and they could make their voices be heard in new ways. Social media, you know, the whole era of, you know, the presidency uh, with Obama, for example, um, you had a generation that, you know, set to social media and suddenly they, you know, when it came to institutions, really said, you know, we're not going to be so skeptical, like blanket skepticism of Gen X. We will judge each one independently on its own merit. And for those that we believe in, we'll support. And for those others, you know, will the whole cancel culture emerge? Like we will let it be known and we can let it be known that we don't support that institution. Um, and then comes Gen Z. And what's amazing about Gen Z is, you know, they're just very realistic, less skeptical and, you know, more realistic. If you think about there's that a jaded. <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, look what they've seen. You know, you know, by 25, they've seen a recession of 2008. They've seen a global pandemic. We're on the verge of, you know, they say another recession. They've seen, you know, they've never seen a world of politics 
where Democrats and Republicans get along. At least millennials could say post 9-11, they saw everyone unite for a better country where, you know, reach across the aisle where Gen Z has never seen that ever, ever, ever. They've never seen a world where Republicans help Democrats. All they've seen is trash each other, you know? So suddenly, you know, they'll believe in institutions, but maybe not your typical one. They're not gonna believe in politics, for example, to make great change. Um, unless they really need to or feel they can. So it, it's really interesting to see what's happening with now Gen Z and institutions. Well, I, you know, just take this just a little bit further. I, I wrote a blog post a few weeks ago um, building on a bank director survey. They they talked to bank leaders and asked them, um, do you believe your bank has the tools in place to effectively serve the following generations of customers? The baby boomers, 93% yes. Uh, generation X, 85% yes. Millennials, 50% yes. And by the time we get to Gen Z, um, which they were defining as 16 to 25 years old, um, 25% yes. So they they don't feel like they're prepared. And and you agree with that assessment. So that's the good yeah. news. Yeah. yeah. What what do they need to do differently? Um, meet them where they're at. You know, one is just going to be that um, it's the end of the expert as we know it. Right. So it used to be like, oh, I went to my financial advisor because he knew everything, you know, and he worked at maybe a big name institution. Well, this is a generation, for example, if they want to know what movie to see, they go to Rotten Tomatoes to see what their peers are saying. You know, so you saw everything from the end of a Betty Crocker who taught you how to cook to the end of a Frommer who told you where to travel to. You know, it's a generation that looks amongst themselves. So it's really peer driven. And if they're going to go into a financial institution, you know, you don't want to say something like, well, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. You know, I, I know this and I've got plenty of clients, you know, so that's one thing. It's just sort of like meet them where they're at and that they are going to come in with knowledge um, and you got to help them sift through that knowledge for sure. Um, that'd be one thing I would just say flat out is that it really is the end of the expert. Um, another analogy you can make with this is sort of we saw that in the education field with a lot of teachers, a lot of teachers struggled when along came Gen Z. And this is a role of technology, JP that played out is, you know, it used to be sage on stage. The teacher stood in front of the room. I was this disciple of all this information and you all students take notes and I grade you. And that's really made room for a guide on the side because they walk in like, you're selling me this, Google's telling me that, you know, it's sort of, they have a new teacher. And I think this, you know, from sage on stage to guide on the side where the smart teachers are saying, well, let's just see what you're reading. Let me help you figure this out and let me guide you versus, you know, I'm the only expert here in this room educating you. And I think the same thing happens with finance. Um, and this is where you see a lot of them really blow it with the transfer of wealth. Your dad's listened to me all these years. Now you're coming in and you're questioning me and we label them right away as, you know, not smart, um, just, you know, um, entitled, all these little terrible stereotypes when I'll come back to, like you said, what do we need to do? You need to accept it's the end of the expert and be a little bit more of that guide on the side for sure. So I, I'm wondering if you've seen in your research, uh, does some of these factors kind of play into the rise of crypto and decentralized finance, right? That we're not relying on traditional institutions. We're going to take um, our matters in our own hands and, and, 
to your earlier point, you know, they they haven't seen a lot of good news in the economic area. They certain areas, they certainly haven't seen the um, post-war expansion that the baby boomer saw. And so a lot of this is, well, listen, I just have to do it myself. I'm gonna buy um, you know, Bitcoin and Dogecoin and NFTs, and that's that's the way I'm I'm gonna take control of my own finance. Is that part of it? Hundred percent, you know, but I think a couple of things. In history, I bet every generation could probably list some new financial investment vehicle that emerged. And so this is just the evolution of finance, too, in a 101 that, you know, it's emerging and it's changing. So we shouldn't be just like, you know, we've seen for every other generation. Are there some generational traits that are part of? Sure. Is it a lack of trust in institutions? Sure. You know, when they're seeing, you know, big data being hacked left and right, but they're also seeing things like, you know, companies like Nike and Gucci and all these other companies invest in NFT. So some big brands that they maybe emulate or big brands that they're seeing sort of as ones that they like make a play in it too. That's saying, hey, you know, I also believe in this brand and what they're doing. Again, end of the expert. The expert isn't just going to be Charles Schwab or some big, you know, finance person. It might be a Nike. It might be a Gucci etc. So I think, you know, it's that as well. Um, but yet it is the era of alternative investment for sure. And I'll bring back one trait, you know, I said they're super realistic. I think they're realistic to know, like they're not going to put all their money into it. They're hearing about the the fraud and they're, you know, yeah. some, of well, some have, <laughs> yeah. but um, some have and they lose out. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing too, is that they're just very realistic and they're going to keep an eye on it. Um, and it won't, won't be everything, but uh, they're willing to try it where the rest of the generations, you know, we'll wait till something's perfect. They're willing to beta something always have been. They wait for, as we say, MVP, minimal viable product. They'll take it. They'll try it. Not all of it. And um, they have an element of FOMO, fear of missing out, that they don't want to be late to the table either. Hmm. Uh, so you have been researching and writing and speaking and advising on these topics for a long time now, and you've you know recently doubled your firepower by working with your own son Jonah. Talk yeah. a little bit about that and and what you've learned and and what he yeah. brings to the table as a Gen Z and what what are some of the collisions you've had in in your own two generations? Um, you know, it, it's one of the things I would say. I'm the luckiest dad in the world that I get to work every day with my son, and we get along famously. And he's one of my greatest teachers. So, right off the top, I can tell you, I just feel so fortunate. But if we play back, you know, what had happened is that, um, you know, way way back, the what put me in business a long time ago um, was was the baby boomers all the time. So baby boom, baby boom, baby boom. I sort of was an extra raising my voice and people ignored Gen X and it backfired. And I was seeing millennial, 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 millennial. And as people started to describe even my kids, Gen Zers, I was like, well, they're not millennials. And I saw, oh my God, history is repeating itself. And so um, I launched the first really uh, study on Gen Z's workplace attitudes right as they were entering the workplace, really early, early on. And my son Jonah. So what, when was that then? Give, give, give us a time frame. 20, 2016, 2016. Okay, so Gen really Z's were, at that point. You know, so they're like graduating high school, entering mm -hmm. university, some maybe leading edge, graduating. Um, 
But I ran the survey, the same one that I had ran for millennials again. So this is now like 15 years later. And I was like, whoa, it was so different. And I was like, deja vu is going to happen. We're going to treat the Gen Zers like the millennials and it'll backfire. And so I ran this study. It was fascinating. And my son, Jonah, who was a sophomore or junior in high school at the time, um, you know, I went to a local university where I'd often test and share some of my data, um, St. Thomas University in Minnesota, St. Paul, a great place. And Jonah came with me um, and giving, you know, presentations, talk, talk some of the data. And they asked a question. I said, well, Jonah, come up here, you know, just on a whim. And it was this light bulb went off when I just saw completely all attention in the room go to him. And I was just like, wow, they want to hear it from a Gen Zer. And so it was, and he loved it. I think he had a light bulb going off being like, wow, I guess what my dad does is pretty cool. Um, and so, you know, he was, he'd come, my kids would always come with me to at least one or two speeches a year. Um, and I'd be lucky if they'd be, you know, willing to come and actually hear me speak. <laughs> he, you know, he just was really fascinated by it. And so um, it really was the start of that. And what I, he needed though, was intense coaching, um, not just podium skills, really more the idea of a, be careful of a focus group of one and to always speak to the data. You know, someone asks you, do you like X, you know, A, B or C? And, and if he does, but you know, the data shows otherwise, he's got to speak to the data. But when he's speaking about himself, you just have to clarify, like, this is my own opinion, the data. And so he just picked that up like this and really was such a natural. And one of the funny things is that our findings was 75% um, of Gen Z believe there's a good way of getting an education other than going to college. And so, you know, he, within a couple of years of doing somebody speaking, came to me and said, well, I don't want to go to college, I'm going to do this. You know, and I was like, well, that didn't, I didn't mean you, you know, like, <laughs> I'm like, the expert, but I was the parent. And it really was, I was experiencing firsthand classic Gen Zer where you know, didn't want to go to college, um, didn't feel he needed to, didn't go to college and quite frankly, hasn't needed it. I'm not saying there isn't value in it. It's a whole separate right. conversation, right. but you know, he really could lean into that data, a uh, phenomenal speaker uh we speak a lot together you know that's the best is that you know when someone asks a question i say yes he says no we just start laughing right it's really authentic it's not you know but we have that all the time we really have these things and it's rooted in our generational differences and so we've been able to you know what i was doing pass on to him and then enter the era of e-learning as you mentioned in the intro um you know covid really shook things up for us suddenly we couldn't present as much. And so what we did, we just doubled down on research. We really said, you know, this is a pivotal moment for all the generations. And we took, it was a gamble, I believe, you know, and just, we didn't chase the virtual market. We just wasn't for me. We, we do them, but you know, we really doubled down on research and now with it lifting, it's just, and Jonah with a couple more years under his belt, it's fascinating for me to watch him really just shine, just shine as, you know, what I would say a true Gen Z expert. And I love working with them. I just do. Oh, that's awesome that you have that chance. The pandemic shook everybody's world, right? Regardless of age. And uh, I'm curious how each of the generations um, have kind of been impacted and particularly around uh, collaboration and workforce. We're, we're in the middle of a massive battle right now about what return to work looks like. And do you need to be in the office or can you have a whole 
remote workforce and all of that. What what does the data tell you around um, the way different generations are dealing with that? I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree that nothing beats a face-to-face conversation, you know, and being in the same room. You know, it's just, it's, it's just great. Everyone loves that. That being said, you, it's also hard to say that we can't be productive as remote workers. You know, um, I think that's going to be really important. And then the whole argument, does this count face-to-face? Are you and I face-to-face right now? Some, you know, the younger generations would say, absolutely. A baby boomer would say, not at all. You know, so you just have those nuances. But I will say, you know, if you kind of break it down, if you look at the baby boom generation, the challenge is that, you know, this is a generation that was told you leave your life at the door and you go to work. You know, and it was like work-life balance. You had work and then you had life. And suddenly we're at home, you know, and I just said to you a few minutes ago, my dog wants something to eat and I handed my dog some food, you know, to a baby boomer. It's just like, you know, like, whoa, I'm professional. You see, you know, like one of your kids or even a spouse walk in their pajamas in the background. It just felt really unprofessional. And it just felt, you know, really uncomfortable. And that's not to say that this generation you know, can't adapt, but to, we have to respect it. Just wasn't what was, they were told, again, during those formative years and beyond, what is professional? Yeah. So I think it'll always lack for uh, baby boomers some sense of professionalism. You know, we're just more casual. Um, That was a generation that fought so hard, you know, on the whole dress code. I still can't believe that, you know, that was a thing for years and years. I had to battle dress code because, you know, a Gen Xer didn't want to wear a tie when there wasn't one customer nearby, you know, right. so... Um, which brings me to a point. I think all the generations um, would acknowledge your customers should drive the discussion. You know, if you are a place of work where customers come in, yes, you need employees there, you know, period, end of story. If our customers expect us to be doing something a certain way that requires you in the office, there's your answer. I mean, it's just like, otherwise you're not in business. So like your customers should drive it, period. Um, What you saw with Gen Xers though, is very comfortable with it. We were always these independent operators. Oh, and I would say of any generation that probably could handle it the easiest, it was a Gen Xer because we're always independent. We could log on. The challenge that a Gen Xer had with COVID was we became the new sandwich generation. Forever we talked about boomers being the sandwich generation. Well, most boomers or a lot of boomers, parents have passed on, um, you know, and their, their grandparents were for suddenly Gen Xers. It was their parents that were really... Um, the population that was struggling health-wise, that was a vulnerable population. And then they also had kids in high school or at home that they were managing. And for a lot of Gen Xers who had kids later in life, that span could be a lot wider than a baby boy. You might even have elementary kids, school kids at home. And so while they were most comfortable with this type of work thing, they were suddenly dealing with the sandwich generation that I think, you know, I would tell you that not enough, especially in finance, pay attention to. I still have people in finance referred to the baby boom generation as um, the sandwich generation. And it's Gen X. And then the right. workplace and in the marketplace, people who talk to Gen X and cater to them being the sandwich generation are going to find a really deep connection there. Well, uh, and it, it seems to me that nobody was hit harder in the pandemic than those in sandwich generations, right? Be, uh, you know, the, add to it the isolation and the health factors, you know, for both the elderly and the young and disrupting, um, you know, daycare and education cycles and all of that thing. They, it really created a lot of stress. I agree. I just, I'm not comfortable saying that the pandemic was worse for one person than another. I just think it Fair hit enough. everyone in, what I would say is that he hit everyone in different ways. Just, right. just because it hit me that way doesn't mean it hit another generation that way. What you saw with millennials continuing on is 
the most collaborative generation ever. So this is a generation that really forced us into open office concept. You know, really like we take down the cubicle walls. We all, to me, it's like an airport, you know, like we all sit together, but millennials loved it. And overnight they're at home, you know, and that collaboration and that communal thing is just taken from them. But something else happened is, you know, I think we have to, for that generation, if you were to look at like January, February, 2020, um, millennials were the most stressed out they have ever been. You know, it's not like pre-pandemic, we are living some balanced utopia. They were really stressed out. So for them, what it allowed is a reboot. It's when your computer can sort of, you know, reboot and as the computer turned back on and they were doing, they're like, oh, I can get my kids out the door. I can. And it was like, wow, this is actually great. I am liking this and I'll find new ways to collaborate, you know, you saw the Zoom happy hours or, you know, they pulled up in parking lots with their cars and, you know, they managed the six feet of distance or whatever. They worked around it and they were like, okay, this really works for this life stage I'm at. And that's where you started to hear about the great resignation because they were like, the worst thing you could say to a millennial is we're going back because going back to them harks back to that January, February, 2020, when, you know, they were just stressed out to the max. So COVID actually like lightened their load, but suddenly, you know, they were still had angst about climbing that ladder. You know, what am I going to be able to do? Um, and they didn't want to go back to the way it was and was worried in a lot of ways. If that's my only way to get ahead, then I got to go find somewhere else to work. Well, you um, mentioned that, you know, the millennials were the most collaborative generation ever. And I, I remember learning about that. Yeah. And and I have uh, my daughter's millennial and, and I was really proud about that for that generation. Um, and but you said Gen Z is much more competitive. Than oh, ever. Gen Z, what, not, let me just finish that thought on millennials. And I will say not only great collaborative, incredible teammates. I mean, they yeah. can join a team, haven't really met somebody, play to their strengths, figure out their strengths, operate as a team. I mean, they just the collaboration is really impressive. Um, a lot of that comes from there. They were the generation that sort of launched media going two ways, social media. You know, suddenly they were the ones that we could make it two way and not where my generation was one way, you know, just being thrusted at you. But then along came Gen Z. Now, remember, boomers raised millennials, typically Gen Xers raised Gen Z. We were, remember, that independent, skeptical generation. So we always had our kids open to alternative paths was always something that they were willing to do. Um, and one thing that I think Gen Xers really said to their Gen Z kids is, yeah, a participation award is BS. Don't believe in them, you know, where millennials are taught, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link and, you know, a lot more collaboration. It's just that you try your best. And Gen X was like, no, winners and losers out there, more often than not, you're gonna lose. It's a tough world out there. Um, a lot of that came from the recession, 2008 recession, where Gen X's net worth, it fell by 45%. So we weren't going to tell our kids the world's your oyster. And so Gen Zers entered it like, whoa, you know, it's a tough world out there. And with parents that were more willing to, you know, have an alternative outlook on things, take something like higher ed to a baby boomer. If their millennial kid didn't go to college, it was sort of a statement about themselves, where to a Gen Xer, we were open to it. Um, you know, I faced it first down with Jonah. It was like shocking to me. I never thought it would be that way. But I will tell you firsthand that um, he was right. In the case of Jonah, didn't need it. And so open to alternative paths. So they became very realistic Gen Z, but extremely 
competitive. And a lot of baby boomers in the workplace, you know, resonate with this new Gen Z. You know, boomers were, I thought, the most competitive generation, and they were until Gen Z. But 80 million baby boomers, you know, competing for the top. They invented internal politics and all those things. Along comes Gen Z, super, super competitive, beyond competitive. But in the workplace, um, I want to stay on this track of COVID. Here's what we found is that, you know, probably of all the generations that had it the toughest in the workplace around COVID, it would be Gen Z. And a lot of people miss it because they think just because they could log on overnight and they were the ones, you know, telling boomers, unmute yourself and all those things, you know, just because they could handle technically what they missed out on JP was the thing that got the rest of us ahead. And that's building social capital. Hmm. The water cooler was gone. There was no meetings around the the boardroom table where suddenly afterwards there's a conversation and you'd be like, what's that about? Oh, it's a new committee. You should join it. And next thing you know, you know, you sort of had a leg up on somebody else just because you were there. Mm-hmm. And so for Gen Zers, they really lost that ability to build the social capital. They really. And so, you know, a lot of places that are operating in a remote setting, what I'll have to tell them is you've got to find ways for a Gen Zer to build social capital in a digital environment. You know, a lot of people on Zoom calls, what happens as soon as it's over, it's like, leave meeting, leave meeting, leave meeting, leave meeting, you know, like, is there a way to encourage managers to ping, you know, a Gen Zer in a chat and say, hey, can you stay on for a couple of minutes? Or I, you know, I'd love just to talk and get to know you better. I liked your last point. Um, it's one of the best things you can do. And I would even say it's a retention strategy would be to figure out how to offer Gen Zers social capital in this new digital and oftentimes remote working environment. You may already have payments embedded into your software platform, but do you have flexibility around how those payment experiences are created? What about control over your pricing or ability to use your own branding? Chances are you probably don't. Discover WorldPay for platforms, a payments platform that puts you in control and puts your software customers first. This all-in-one payment facilitation platform offers more than just embedded payments. With WorldPay for platforms, take advantage of a full set of solutions, including professional managed and advisory services to enhance your business. Make your software even better with a solution that easily integrates and adapts to your needs, helping you create experiences beyond payments. Discover the possibilities you can unleash with WorldPay for platforms. Visit fisglobal.com slash WorldPay platforms to get started today. I remember... um you telling a story about uh, sending a, an email to baby boomers and uh, you were chastised because you didn't alphabetize everybody because if you, you don't alphabetize, that. that's impressive, JP. I, I do. And, uh, and, and if you don't alphabetize, then you need to rank them by um, hierarchy in the organization, right? How does, how does that manifest itself today with Gen Z? What, what are the markers of hierarchy or, or importance? Well, I think it even started with the millennials, but like, so the story goes is that I had a brand new client. I was a Gen Xer uh, and a very baby boom cloud, one of the biggest companies in the U.S. actually. And I sent out a memo. I even remember the name of the company, but I won't say it. (laughs) Um, um, And I'll never forget. I got a voicemail, you know, saying, David, we received your memo. We know she didn't alphabetize the list of recipients. If this is going to be successful, we'll need you to pay attention to these details. And I remember thinking like, Am I being punked? Is that my brother? I, I was like so dumb. 
dumbfounded, but like it mattered to a boomer where you were on the memo, first said you were the most important. And so, you know, it really was my intro into internal politics and hierarchy. But what we saw with, you know, truly the internet and social media, really with the millennials is a flattening of, you know, the hierarchy where suddenly it's just sort of like everyone's in the middle. You know, there's really no one at the top. You're in the middle and who's around you. And just to be really smart about it. Um, but I think we saw, you know, suddenly you got rid of a corner office that used to be where you were, um, you know, as a lot of it was location in an office, a title, um, where you were on the memo. And I think it really was the millennial generation that flattened that, um, which I think can make it a lot harder for a Gen Zer to be like, who do I go to for this? Especially for a generation, as I mentioned, it's the end of the expert, you know, do I go to my friend for this? You know, I kind of want their job. I don't want to tell them, you know, this or that. Do I go to? So I think sometimes hierarchy can make it a lot easier. I mean, there's a reason it works in the military. I say jump, you say how high and we win the battle. You know, places like the military at Mads, if everything in the military had to be done with, you know, Kumbaya chat room, you know, they'd lose the battle. Um, but it's really one of the few places the military where that top down um, is played out. It's really interesting. And so I think. And banks. What? And, and banks. banks. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Noted. <laughs> yeah. Um, you've also talked about this idea of work-life balance for Gen Z. It's really about a blend. Talk, talk a little bit about what your research shows there. Um, yeah. You know, it used to be you had your work, and we mentioned it for the baby boomers, you know, and, and, and for my generation. You know, for my generation, the difference was we could say, I'm leaving at five for the t-ball game. And because there wasn't as many of us to go around, we weren't worried about our jobs. I mean, if a baby boomer said that, great. I got you now 80 million others that'll stick around, you're gone. And so, you know, working late hours was a badge of honor. Um, so a few things. One is, you know, the younger you go, they'll say they watch the older generation give too much to the job at the sacrifice of family, health, Etc. And it wasn't balanced. Um, so that's one thing they've seen. The other thing they've seen is work is no longer a place. Work is wherever you've got your phone or your item because I can log in and do it. You know. And I remember even pre-pandemic, we did a study with Gen Zers and they couldn't understand even the definition of remote working. They're like, so do I have to leave the building to be remote? I mean, if I'm upstairs and you're downstairs, I mean, it was just sort of like, if I'm logged on, I'm there. They just didn't get it. And so, you know, work is no longer a place. And I think another thing, too, that's really happened is permission to talk about mental health. I think that's a really big deal. You know, it's like suddenly for a boomer, it would have been wimpy to talk about. And I think you go to a Gen Zer, you know, they all have therapists. Everyone's got that and they talk about it, you know, and workplaces, you know, for example, I know like LinkedIn offers all of their employees. Like, and I know there's many companies out there that do this, you know, therapy. And so it's a noted conversation. So if you take things like, you know, like I'm worried about my mental health. I've watched people take, pay too high of a price for success and work's no longer a place. This work-life balance where you work from nine to five and then the rest of it, you know, just doesn't work. It just doesn't make sense. And so for Gen Z, it really is this idea of blend where work and life are 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so what that forces managers though to really do is stop judging things by FaceTime, are you there? You know, um, are you sitting at your desk? And really make it about productivity. If I'm getting my job done, does it really matter as much when or how? And that's hard for the other generation because they only knew one way and that's how they were told to be success, especially, you know, for boomers, especially, you know, where it was, if 
you know, they bragged if they were in, in the office on the weekend, you know, where now it just, it just matters less and less provided that you're being productive. You know, I've seen some of these things um, at play firsthand. You're, you're uh, I'm sure, aware that Amazon and other companies do literally bring your parents to work day. And uh, my nephew uh, worked at Amazon for a long time, and he brought my uh, baby boomer sister-in-law out to visit. And she really got a kick out of it, but she was really confused. Right? They're, they've got a number of... Um, uh, you know, cafes, uh, some are employees only, some are open to the public and, you know, restaurants all around the, the 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 campus where all the buildings are and people are working there. She says, well, why why are these people in their office? And while well, they're working, right? Sometimes they're in twos and threes, sometimes they're alone, but they all have a laptop in front of them. And she's like, well, aren't they going to get in trouble? Don't, don't they need to get back up to their office? And, you know, she came from a, you know, much more traditional work environment and it was really hard for her to get her head around on that. Well, for sure. I mean, it goes back to what I'm saying. Work's no longer a place. I could be at my desk or I could be at the smoothie bar. You know, I mean, it really doesn't matter. I mean, the, the idea of bringing your parents to work day, very millennial centric. I don't think we're going to see as much of that with Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's nice about millennials and Gen Z is historically and research shows they get along fabulous with their parents. So I have to think it's cool. You know, like I would not have brought, I mean, I love my mom and dad, but you know, I don't, there would never have been a bring your parents to work day ever. Right. Right. Uh, but the other thing that you brought up is that, um, you know, a smoothie bar or an on-site workout facility and this and that, but I think super smart of those workplaces. I mean, it encourages them to stick around the office longer. If I provide food, I mean, food is probably one of the best benefits to provide, you know, a workplace and now more than every healthy food, you know? And so, um, and we all know if people work out more, they're going to be more productive at work. If you're eating healthier foods, all that data, it's true. So if your workplace could be a catalyst for that, I even think that's a retention strategy to hang on to employees. I really do. Um, the challenge that I'm curious about is if those campuses that these huge campuses that do all these great things, um, if it's enough to bring in the employees and odds are, if it did, they're going to bring in a lot of the younger employees, which is fine. But then it kind of goes back to what I said before. Where's my ability to build the social capital if all, you know, the older generations are on a separate floor somewhere else or, you know, working remotely. And so um, I would say this lack of ability to build social capital is going to hold back the younger generations. It's one of the concerns I definitely have my eyes on. You know, that's super interesting. And and I, I'm going to use the same broad brush I don't like others to use. But in general, right, I joked yeah. earlier about banks, um, but many of them are still, you know, led by uh, boomers or, or old Xers and, you know, more traditional and hierarchical. And they've had a hard time um, attracting and retaining um you know, younger employees. And kind of the flip side of that, obviously, is the rise of fintech. Yes, it's technology. Yes, it's, you know, younger customers and all of that. But also the organizational structure of most of those companies are also quite a bit different. And so, you know, what a day in the life is like, you know, working for a, you know, technology-centric company versus a brick-and-mortar-centric company has, um, you know, really driven a lot of this. And, and where the bank and fintech divide has been going for the last decade, really, or certainly the last five years, is it's not so much they're competing for the same customers. It's they're, um, in most cases, trying to figure out how to work together. And so what you have is 
you know, organizations that manage completely differently and measure success completely differently, trying to figure out how to work together. And it's been, you know, interesting. And I, I, I'm curious if you've seen anything like that in your research. So at the organizational level, right, they're, they're sort of baby boom companies and, you know, Gen Z sure. companies, right? Uh, I, definitely, I have, you know, and let's just be clear, you know, if you're inventing a video game versus managing checkings and savings and bonds. I mean, there is just a different era of what a customer expects. You know, I just yep. think, you know, so no fault to the financial institution, but it's money. It's always been something a little bit more serious. And the other thing too, money is one of the three topics that the older generations used to never talk about is money, politics, and sex. You know, those are the three things you just didn't. So that was always seen as very private very serious and it still is serious but you know suddenly there's a pool table in the bank like no 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 so i think there's this level of you know what people feel is unprofessional lack of serious and that just that's rooted in generational history it just is yeah. um the challenge because you know a uh, couple of things that you mentioned i want to touch upon the day in the life i think you know it's the banks or financial institutions that put out a really fun campaign and be, you know try to be Google or try to be Amazon. And then, you know, the employees show up and it's like, yeah, no. I right. think there's this, just own what you are, you know, and show a day in the life and really show it and don't try to pretend to be, because they'll sniff it out in five minutes. Definitely, you know. It's now, hard to fake. It, it's hard to fake, but if you have a younger generation's, you know, saying, you know, why can't we have a pool table here or there? I'm just going to stay on that train of thought. Yeah. You know, what you can't say is, well, that's the way it's always been done anymore. It's sort of like, well, just because it's not broke doesn't mean it can't get better. And so I think, you know, it's the places that listen to the younger generations and see now if there's a good reason why. If it's like, you know, 75% of our customers are traditionalists and boomers, they won't like it. And then it's like, okay, and we cater to our customers, there's an answer. But that's the way it's always been done is not an answer. Yeah. In my, in my experience, I will say, though, the number one thing that boomers and actually I would say the whole financial industry hides behind is this dirty word compliance. <laughs> That's oh, exactly yeah. where I was going to go. You first. Yeah. Compliance, compliance, compliance. You know, and I bet if I would have said 15 years ago at a conference, you know, we're going to be able to pick up our phone, hit a number and transfer money to someone a la Venmo, you know, like, never compliance won't allow. Well, we're doing that now, you know, right. and so I think it's a lot harder to hide behind compliance is what I would definitely say. So, well, yes. And, um, we're actually just kind of cresting a new era where, um, you know, the, the revenge of the nerds, uh, compliance is kind of hitting back. We've had enough significant failures in some, you know, new age, uh, let's call it organizations where, you know, when you are moving and, and protecting money, compliance does matter. I, I, and, and both things are true. I completely agree. It's an excuse that many traditionalists hide behind. I totally agree that saying, Hey, just because we've never done it that way before, that's not a good answer. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, the move fast and break things ethos of Silicon Valley doesn't work um, when you're managing, you know, trillions of dollars of assets and, and safeguarding and moving it on behalf of others. So I, I think we have more interesting reconciliations to come from here. Absolutely. And I want to be sure I'm not against compliance. compliance right, right, right. It's necessary. But I think, you know, Compliance evolves, things change, you know, and what we comply to, um, we need to be open-minded to. And oftentimes I would let the younger generation lead that discussion. Some of the best ways you'll work through it is a table where you've got a Gen Zer, a millennial, an Xer, 
and a baby boomer, you know? But if all the younger generation hears is, you know, we tried that back in 1978 and it didn't work. I mean, they're going to be like gone versus let's have a discussion what can and can't work. And that's where, you know, we'll all come together around what is compliant. Right. Yeah, I want to dig in just a little bit into um, the cuspers, right? The people that were kind of born on the edges of that, because that's the other thing that, you know, kind of drove my initial skepticism too, is, you know, nothing magically happened, you know, in 1964 or whatever year you want to call the end of the baby boom. I I was born in that era. Um, So technically, I'm a late, late boomer. I I vaguely, vaguely remember the Kennedy assassination and funeral, but I was only 20 years old when MTV hit the air, right? Um, um, and and so I and I was a latchkey kid, right? I have a lot of stereotypical, you know, early Gen Xer, yeah, kind of things. You know, my daughter is, uh, you know, a late uh, millennial, so she's got you know a little bit of Gen Z uh, in her as well. So you know, how how do how do we think about those gray areas when when people just go, oh, that's not me, you know, because this this um, part is and that part isn't. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. Here's where, I mean, and I know there's others in my industry who do this. Here's what I have chosen not to do. And I feel kind of strong about it is to come up with yet another generation that those yeah. in between. You Overlaps, know, yeah. Well, because I just think it's going to confuse the generation. I mean, think about it. In this short amount of time, you know, we've covered four generations. We've touched on the marketplace. We've touched on workplace. We haven't even gotten to the, the global scale yeah. plays out globally, which is a whole nother thing that we'd spend a lot of time researching because a lot of our companies are international. If you then start throwing in these mini generations, I think it confuses the dialogue. That being said, there's a very important place for what we call cuspers. And, you know, in my first book uh, that you reference, When Generations Collide, there's a chapter called Cusper the Friendly Ghost. Right. And it's sort of like this idea of, you know, they're they're lost. Yay! They're lost in between um, the two generations. But here's what's really fascinating, and I've been able to prove this in a lot of ways, is they play a really important role when it comes to leadership because they tend to be sort of natural mediators. They understand who set the policy and why we're kind of stuck on this and compliance maybe, and why we have a generation saying, no, we can do online banking. You know, they understand. So they tend to be great mediators, really good negotiators. And if you look at a lot of CEOs in our in our country and around the world, they're on the cusp for that very reason that I think they can straddle two generations. Now, if I really dig in with someone who's on the cusp, they naturally will sort of trend with one generation more than the other and um, not necessarily be a hybrid. But that being said, there is a very strong place for cuspers that I think, you know, plays out in management and in leadership. Well, that might explain a lot of why I have one foot in traditional financial services and one foot in fintech. Right? I'm a cusper. Go. There you go. There you go. Well, you mentioned this, and I and I do want to talk about the global trends. You know, out, outside of you know the workplace in the U.S., what's this look like globally? Um, we could, I mean, we could spend a whole nother podcast on this, JP. But here's the one thing that I would say, it might even be refreshing for everybody, is that of all the generations, Gen Z is the most globally similar. And here's why, you know, you talked about, let's take a baby boomer, Vietnam, Watergate, assassination of Kennedy, right? You ask a boomer in Asia, Europe, South America, Australia, they maybe heard of those events, but mean nothing and didn't shape them. Where 
you know, and if it happened here, it was a week later when it hit their newspapers, you know, or five days later when it hit those newspapers, where Gen Z, if something happens right now, it's heard and felt around the world instantly. So that's why you find out, you know, there are events like a pandemic that is global. Um, a lot of the events and conditions they can relate to. So Gen Zers, if something happened right now in Paris, France, some type of attack that was just horrible, um, you know, you would have a Gen Zer saying, oh, I still remember when this happened in Paris. And so we do find, you know, that on the whole, they're the most globally similar. However, where you will see some differences was in parenting styles, how an Xer parents to Gen Z here is radically different than how an Xer parents a Gen Zer say in Asia. So there are differences, but it starts from probably one of the most globally similar places, which I think has been really, really cool. Well, that's interesting. We we talk about this. We're recording this on the day after World Cup final. We're literally half of the globe, right? Four billion people were all doing the same thing for two hours yesterday, yep. and I, I I was one of them. And um, it was really interesting to see um, how how that now when you marry that to the ability of technology, not you know just tape delay or you know newspaper reports printed the next day, um, the instantaneous nature of uh, of of that. It's uh, you know, pr pretty fascinating to watch. Okay, so take an industry like finance, right? Um, that you said has been very traditional and now we're in the workplace and a Gen Z is used to something happening, you know, and, and you know, seeing um, Argentina win and boom, they know instantaneously. Now they enter the workplace. We do quarterly reports. <laughs> Looking backwards. Or feedback, you know, feedback yes. is where everyone blows it, you know, and we'll talk about it in your annual review, which is really much what's happened the last few weeks, you know. It's right, just, right. And so, you know, this instantaneous, while it's great for, you know, the World Cup, it definitely is going to present challenges for a lot of your listeners when it comes to, you know, onboarding and recruitment and retention and day-to-day -day management for, for sure Gen Zers and millennials too. Absolutely. Well, David, this has been fantastic. Before we wrap up, what, what, what's your kind of best advice um, for uh, people dealing with Gen Z and finance? Um, you know, understand that they do want financial advice. They've seen that they're not just going to do RoboCop, you know, like a robo banking, sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not just going to do that. They're going to, you know, they want an advisor, but they want an advisor that's not going to be judgmental. That's going to be open to anything from Bitcoin to, you know, like we talked about NFTs. Um, they're going to, I mean, 50% of Gen Z want to go shop brick and mortar and 50% want to, um, do it online. And so the hmm. idea of going into a financial institution is definitely going to be great. But if they walk in and they feel like, you know, really out of place, it's going to be an issue. It's going to be a challenge. So if you can create an, an atmosphere where they want to come in, I definitely, you know, would say it can happen. But I would also say, do you have a Gen Z advisory board? You know, most of the decisions or approaches, marketing, um, all the above to connect with them are probably being designed by my generation and baby boomers. Get some Gen Zers around that table, ask for their input, um, find out. Because oftentimes, you know, we think we know, or we've got a focus group of two or three that's sitting on our own dinner table. We haven't really asked them um, and they'll tell you, and they're used to being asked. So I would say, you know, get to know them and meet them where they're at for sure. Well, that's been great. It's so so good to catch up and talk one on one about uh, your work. How can people learn more about your and Jonah's work? 
You can always find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I do a lot of work there, but I would say go to genguru, G-E-N-G-U-R-U.com. Uh, reach out to us and we love doing, you know, workshops, presentations, and we're known as, you know, for customizing and we'll really get to know your industry and uh, institution and help you bridge some generation gaps. Great. David, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, JP. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.